Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock Jock Steve Price. I don't like Shock Jock, by the way. I think um, Price has done right. Well, Steve joins us now. Cricket and horse racing, two of Australia's sporting passions. Our on-the-record guest this edition has been talented enough to be successful at both as a test player, one-day cricketer and thoroughbred owner. Simon O'Donnell lost a Melbourne Cup by a nose, was named the one-day cricketer of the year and survived a life-ending battle with cancer. And that's a six. That's a big one. A huge hit from Simon O'Donnell. Welcome to our latest episode of On The Record, where, of course, we go behind the headlines and we talk with the big names of the Australian media. And given our nation's love of sport, often those names uh, coincide, intersect with the world of sport. You can catch on previous episodes, of course, of On The Record, chats with Sam Newman and with Mark Scaife. Our guest today is often described as living a boy's own adventure of a life, playing cricket for his country, for Australia. He played AFL, Australian football at the top level for VFL side St Kilda, and most recently, of course, having his hands all over, if not on, the great race, the Melbourne Cup. Simon O'Donnell, welcome to On The Record. Steve, nice to be part of it um, and to be mentioned in such uh, illustrious tones. I'm a very proud person. Scaife, Newman, O'Donnell, they all run together pretty well, don't they? Do I need to be hanging out with Sammy just at the minute? <laughs> Look, I love that description of a, a boy's own life. And it, I, I tell you what it did when I was doing some research on you, Simon. It reminded me, and you'll really appreciate this, of a day back in the 1980s, I was sent as a very young reporter, I would have been in my mid-20s, in Adelaide to interview the cricket legend Keith Miller. Now, Miller was staying at what was then known as the Ansett Gateway Hotel, which I'm sure in your cricket days you stayed at. He was working as a commentator. I think it was about, from memory, about 11 o'clock in the morning. I turned up uh, and the great Keith Miller opened the door and offered me a whiskey. (laughs) Does that sound normal? (laughs) I think in that era, yes. And then we've we've slowly graduated to a – to a more sensible way of um, preparing ourselves for the game, and and uh, Keith was a, a real character. Keith, funnily enough, served in the same regiment as my dad in the Air Force. Weren't they great men? I mean, what they did in Europe, boy, oh boy! Yeah, extraordinary stuff. So um, our family association goes back to Keith a long time, and our our affection for Keith goes back a, a long time. My my dad, who was a, a quiet, private person, always spoke in great tones of Keith Miller. Did he play footy with your dad? Uh, yes, he did. They played at St Kilda. So the link goes yeah, all the way back to there. Yeah, yeah. No, no, they, 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 were, they were great chums. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's funny when you read things about Keith and, and obviously knowing my father so well, uh, they were polar opposites in the way they lived their life. Dad was a teetotaler and hadn't touched a, a cigarette or a cigar in his life, and, and Keith was uh, completely the opposite. But uh, Dad, you know, w- was um, always respected people for, for who they were and, and what they did and um, where they stood in society and their attitudes to people, and uh, he always held Keith Miller in really uh, high regard. So I presume your dad didn't have an affair with Princess Margaret? <laughs> he never, never got into great detail on those sorts of things about Keith. It was generally about more the Air Force, the games of cricket they used to play, uh, the footy they played together, and um, 
the, the ne- he never, when the lights went out, Dad, I, I think, went straight to sleep. He didn't want to hear any of the other stories. Keith Miller, they should have made a movie out of Keith Miller's life and got Errol Flynn to play the part. I mean, it was just an extraordinary, uh, what a personality, what a character. And I, I suppose back in those days, every kid, every boy in Australia looked up to Keith Miller and every woman in Australia would like to be by his side. Yeah. Oh, he, he was a, he was quintessential Australian, wasn't he? I, I, I think in many ways, and I, I, we, we talk about the armed forces and, and Gallipoli and you know the, the, the wars that have been fought and the courage that have been shown by Australians. But I think you're right in what you say, that people looked at Keith Miller and said, yep, that's an Aussie. That's who we want to be. You know, we're, 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 we're you know, loyal and we're tough and we're strong, but we've got a great sense of humour and you know, when the game's over, we like to make sure we relax and party and enjoy. And I, I think that became you know a, a big part of who we are in this country today. I heard an interview the other day with a 102-year-old uh, World War II veteran. He was, a, a like your dad, he was in the Air Force, uh, shot down over Germany and spent uh, the better part of the rest of the war in a prisoner of war camp uh, under the heel of, under the boot of the Germans. And it was so interesting to hear him talk about that time and how we're all now complaining because we've got to wear a mask when we go outside because of COVID. These guys went to the other side of the world uh, left their families behind, fought for their country, and often had to un- un- endure extreme pain and suffering. And yet, we're whinging about not being able to go down to the pub. Yeah, so I, I think it's a great lesson in perspective, isn't it? You know, and, and those those older folks that are still with us and and you know, can paint those pictures, you know, do give you a an extraordinary shot in the arm and a dose of reality about what what life has been in this country and, and what people did for this country. And you know, really what we're being asked to do now is very limited compared to what people were asked to do 100 years ago um, to keep this nation, set this nation on the course that uh, it has taken. Your dad sent you to Assumption College. Did that mean that you got a scholarship to go there for, for sport or did you go there because your old man felt that he wanted to send you to what, still is one of the most prestigious sporting schools in the country. Uh, we had a family association. Now, those days, you know, the Morris brothers that literally travel around the, you know, well, firstly, Assumption based in Kilmore, just north of Melbourne, about an hour north of Melbourne. And Where you the still are. In those Fruit doesn't fall Sorry. far from the tree. <laughs> no, that's quite right. But... <laughs> Um, we, we we live just out of out of Kilmore now, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say I've come back to um to uh, ingratiate myself back to the school because I think they'll please get rid of me. But you know, those days, you know, there was a lot of recruiting happened around those northeast Riverina areas, um, southwest Victoria for the for the boarding schools, and and Kilmore had a something college. Kilmore had a, I suppose, an advantage because it was still very much a country school. So um, my eldest brother, my two brothers went there, um, I, I went there, so there was quite a family association over the journey. Was it always a good AFL, VFL footy school? Very much so, All, always, and was a really good cricket school too, though. They, they've won just as many cricket premierships as they have footy premierships without you know, probably the profile of players going on like they have in AFL footy, but yeah, it was always a very um, a proud school of uh, of what they achieved on the sporting field. And I, I think that in many ways sort of set the college going 
um, you know, the early days there was a brother Dominus. I know that coached my eldest brother, and you know, they still really talk in great tones about brother Dominus and how he coached the first 18. And it was taken over by a gentleman by the name of Ray Carroll, who was the sportsmaster for many years at Assumption. And, you know, the way he plied the trade of, of the kids was, you know, extraordinary, really. Like, I played for a number of years under him in footy and cricket and you know I never really heard the same speech twice and his um, I, I suppose appreciation of history and using that in the right manner to say don't you be the ones that, that let down the tradition really lifted kids and, and put, took great pride or enabled kids to take great pride in their performance to make sure they did their very best and, and that ended up in uh, you know, a lot of success for the college over the journey. Was that the first place, Simon, where you had to make the choice between uh, football and cricket, or was it just as a kid you played cricket in summer and footy in winter? Yeah, that was it. I was originally born Stephen in Dunlequin in New South Wales, so um, you know how I'd love to be in New South Wales now um, with what's going on. But uh, the yeah, you, you just we were just country kids, you know. Saturday morning when you're at home, you. You played junior cricket, and then you rode down to the senior cricket in the afternoon, hoping someone's due to breaking down, driving in from the paddock, and they couldn't play. So you got a game, and all those sorts of things. And and school was the same. You played footy in the winter and cricket in the summer, and you represented your college as, as best you could. And it wasn't long after that, and that was 1980. I finished school. Not long after that, you know, things started to turn professional footy first. Um, you know, and by sort of 82, 83, you know, football was pretty much a uh, you know, you held down a job, but, you know, you were training four days a week and four and five days a week in pre-season starting in, you know, October and November. So you, you were being taught that, you know, professionalism is only just around the corner and we were probably, you know, 60 or 70% there at, at that stage of the growth of footy and, and how people trained. You kicked 100 goals in your senior year. I presume then Assumption won the GPS comp that year, did they? Yeah, we did. Uh, we won the grammar schools comp that year, and we won it pretty impressively. We had really good lineup of of players. I think out of that eighteen, there was eight or ten that went on and played AFL or, or VFL footy as it was then. So it was a was a hell of a lineup, and I was lucky enough to be full forward. So there was and blokes uh, that had enough polish there that there wasn't a lot I needed to do other than run straight at them, <laughs> and they'd um, hit you somewhere around the chest region. So. I thank them for um, uh, for that year more than uh, the ability I probably had. I think you're being uh, overly modest. We'll get on to your, uh, your AFL, VFL career in a moment. So <laughs> how was your cricket when you were at school? Oh, I was, uh, we won the cricket. We had a, we had a good sporting journey. You know, my three seniors. Did you actually do any study or did you just play cricket and football? No, I, English. I used to roll the pitch. <laughs> uh, we sent out to roll the pitch to make sure that um, you know, if there was rain about, we didn't roll it too much. We thought we could knock sides over. But uh, yeah, look, it was just, I think a boarding school in those days was tough. You know, you lived in a room that, you know, housed 60 or 80 kids. You had probably a 1.5 metre um, gap between you. And in, there, in, in that gap was a, a set of drawers that your whole life lived in while you were boarding school. So, um, it, it, it was a, a real sense of mateship and it was the first probably time I'd learnt that to the level um, and, and how it could be used so adequately in, in you know, piecing teams and groups together to, to garner success and 
uh, that's what Assumption was built on. You know, that, that real us against them mentality. We're doing it tough. And, um, you know, the kids from Trinity and other schools, they were going home that night. They were roast dinner. And you know, we were having a hot dog in a roll with some tomato sauce. And we'd try and steal a loaf of bread out of the kitchen. Yeah, Sam Newman, who I spoke to for this series, talked about his time at Timbertop and how uh, tough that could be. And that I think the Sultan of Brunei was there and refused to chop wood. Well, of course, he didn't get anywhere near the fire. It was that sort of, I guess it it, it engenders in you that that mateship and working as a team that you go on to use when you when you work in uh, in sporting teams, both in cricket and footy. Yeah, yeah, and. I think those memories, and it's great that you know, Sam, you know, at his age now, is, is still recounting those sort of times because they are very much the fabric of who you become. Because you know, people will often ask, or I'll run into someone, you know, at the pub. Not that you know we're spending a lot of time at them at the moment, or you know, a game of footy, and we'll talk about a, a game between Marklin and Assumption. And you, you remember so much of it. But if someone said, oh, what about that day you played Pakistan at the Wacker and this happened and that happened, you, you still think, oh, hang on. Um, yeah, you're not, you're not as across it, as silly as that sounds, as you are some of those um, absolutely life-changing moments and um, moments that really taught you great life lessons that you learned at school. But back in 1980, you were still expected to have some sort of a, a career when you left school, regardless of your sporting prowess. As you said, AFL was still VFL. It wasn't professional, so you weren't going to earn enough income there, and cricket was even less of an earner. So what were you? What was your ambition out of school to do, apart from play cricket and football? I was, I've always been involved in agriculture, um, being, you know, from a little country town and, and, you know, a farming background. So, uh, you know, beef cattle was always, you know, something I, I was um, uh, enthused about uh, in my younger years. And, you know, well, I, know you like eat, I know you like eating steak. Is that what that means? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, that's <laughs> why I think I like eating steak so much. So uh, when I left school, my first job, I was a trainee livestock auctioneer at a place called Newmarket. Now, Newmarket was the biggest selling centre in Victoria, possibly even Australia at that time, right in the centre of Melbourne, right next to Flemington Racecourse used to be. And um, I was a trainee livestock engineer there for a company called Farmers and Graziers and you know, spent my early years at, at Newmarket uh, in the sheep and cattle industry as a, as a stock and station agent, if you like. So, you know, Really, agriculture all the way through has, has been part of what I've done, um, not only you know, with, with um, beef cattle, but you know, probably involved with horses as well because you know, that, was, that was the way I, I grew up and they were the memories and, and they were the, the, the passions that um, you had at that younger age. You played uh, VFL for St Kilda. Now, it's very easy. How many flags do we win in that era? Well, it, you played in 82 and 83. Is that right? Yeah. In 1982, <laughs> uh, St Kilda won four games and finished second last on the ladder. I'm sorry to do this to you, Simon. In 83, <laughs> you went one better and finished last, but you did win five games, not four. <laughs> so that was easy to come to grips with. I'd just gone, gone to a school 
I hadn't lost a game of cricket in 23 years. Yes. I went to St Kilda, we couldn't win one. <laughs> what was it like in St Kilda then? I mean, look at 1982. Um, I can rem- the, the thing I can remember about 82 is because I'm a Richmond supporter. Uh, we were in the grand final against Carlton. We should have won it, but some dopey woman naked ran onto the, the field called <laughs> Helen D'Amico, uh, rushed yeah. up to Bruce Dool, uh, made Jimmy Jess lose all, all sense of concentration on the game, and we actually, we actually got done. And my job on Monday as a newspaper reporter was to go and find this silly girl, uh, which I did in a in a rundown house out near Tullamarine Airport, and it turns out she was a stripper from the Crazy Horse <laughs> nightclub in Adelaide. <laughs> Oh, to help me. <laughs> oh, dear. The one thing, looking back on that period in Kilda, and it is, is we weren't much good, but I, I hope if there was anything, anyone ever asked what the you know, 82, 83 teams were like, I think, you know, we we did our best. You know, we were on the man and we just didn't, you know, we... we I remember playing sides like Carlton and Richmond. You know, Carlton had, you know, Ashman and Mark Koo and Johnston and, you know, they just, Mark McClure, Kenny Hunter, um, you know, Mike Fitzpatrick, you know, we, we, you know, a lot of times kept up for two and a half quarters and, you know, we just, you know, sometimes the, I think the class just wore us down. But I hope we're, we were recognised that we had a go. What they used to think is we were very good at night time. <laughs> and we had some guys that, you know, I think sometimes the globe um, went from a 75 watt to 150 watt when the when the sun went down. But um, that was a, probably a, another story and for another day. You played at Moorabbin, it would have been pretty brutal there in the middle of winter, wouldn't it? It was. <laughs> there used to occasionally be a leak in the middle, you know, the old days, the no um, uh, drop-in pitches in those days, of course, on your suburban ground. Generally, the middle of Moorabbin would always be the wettest um, cricket wicket area in any of the VFL grounds um, in Melbourne, and that was done for a reason. We were always trying to slow the other mob up a bit, and if they were running around in six or eight inches of of turf, we thought we could uh, at least slow them up a bit, but uh, we slowed them up a touch, but uh, never enough to generally get the job done. What happened at the end of 1983? Why, why did you decide uh, that it was going to be cricket and not football? And had, had sport got to that stage at that point where uh, you couldn't do both? Yeah, that was the driver. The driver, basically, um, Alex Jezlenko was the, the coach at St Kilda. So I loved Jezlenko. He was fantastic. Um, we used to start training basically the week after the grand final and we would do five days a week. Um, and then a fitness test every second Saturday, which is a run from the the um, you know to the Black Rock clock from Dendy Beach, you know, which is a long way. And then I'd jump in the car and drive to Essendon versus you know, Richmond at Punt Road mm. to play cricket. So it, it it came a time where you know you had to make a call, and so still to this day, I wouldn't have a clue why I made the call. I just did. It was gut feeling. I said, oh, I'm going to go and do that. And it was, was literally a country kid saying, oh, well, if everyone's telling me I can't do both, um, I'll go and give this a go. Did, and, you, did you enjoy one above, above the other? I love both. And that, that was the tough thing. It, it took me a little while to think, why, 
why why are people making me do this? You know, I love doing what I'm doing, and you know, I, I suppose in hindsight, yeah, you would have ended up you know, a jack of all trades and a master of none if you if you didn't go that way because that that's just the way sport was going. That um, you had to you had to prepare yourself properly. Um, cricket was was well behind footy, uh, and you know, possibly one of the things that that did twist my arm is you know in the time I had played footy for those two or three years since I'd left school, you, know, you really learned how to train and how to prepare yourself. And, and that was a that was a genuine advantage in my first two or three years of cricket because you were generally fitter than the guys you were competing against. And that was a wonderful advantage. So did that help you in uh, becoming an all-rounder that you could actually bat and bowl that you were fitter? Uh, yeah, probably. It probably helped. I mean, you relied far more back then on on match fitness more so than, you know, going to gyms and, you know, doing 10 100s and those sort of things. You know, you bowled a lot more in the nets and you batted a lot more in the nets and you know, there wasn't as much of the um, extracurricular stuff that, is, that is, has crept into the game over time. Uh, so, you know, you, your fitness generally wasn't an issue from that point of view. But what we taught me in those days, you know, the, the extra stuff you did, um, when there was a day off and you were at the gymnasium or you're having a swim or you're having a distance run and they're the sort of things that, that propelled you, hopefully, to, to um, make sure that preparation uh, gave you your best opportunity of success and, and, you know, looking back, I was I was really pleased that that gave me my best opportunity. So you finish AFL uh, in sort of August of 83, heading into the 83-84 cricket season. Uh, you're what? I just 20- need to tell you, my last game of AFL footy was against Collingwood at Victoria Park. That would have been memorable. Yes, it was. And I'm going to tell you why it was memorable. The first reason was we had a breakfast because if we won, we were going to get off the bottom of the ladder. So we had a breakfast at the Retreat Hotel in Collingwood. Yes. Now, the Retreat Hotel was on Nicholson Street. Now, there's only one Nicholson Street I know, and that's a big one. The Retreat Hotel is on this little, little Nicholson Street, you know, off. Um, I think Victoria Street, you know, just near Victoria Park. So first thing is I'm late for the breakfast. Because you got lost. Uh, yeah. Second thing is, you know, I, I well, I didn't get a touch all day. The third thing is, and people hear about, you know, the, the Collingwood um, Social Club and the, uh, you know, how uncomfortable they made, you know, um, sporting or footy teams feel coming out onto the ground. They were feral. They were feral. What they did, they had four wooden spoons and they stuck them in the ground and lit them. It was absolutely magnificent. So as we ran out, we had to jump these four wooden spoons. It was 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 was, was one of the most brilliant pieces of uh, sporting psychology I think I'd ever witnessed. And that was the Collingwood Tier Squad that did it. Uh, lovely people. Good to see some things don't change, Simon. <laughs> so you get to you get to the eighty three eighty four start of the cricket season. So are you playing club cricket and for Victoria already by then? Uh, I'm playing club cricket, and I'd been picked in the last game the previous year, and it was twelfth man in Perth, and that was I, Sheffield Shield. You know, yeah, so that was sort of a bit of a look at you know what that world looked like, and you know, I quite liked what that world looked like and then I I came back from there and I, I'd been doing footy training during the summer and, and you know I said no no I'll go down the cricket path which 
I did and and you know, did my best over a, over a period of time, you know, with that. But um, you know, again, it's still one of those things. And you know, at fifty seven, I still look back and think, what did make you do that? And I, I still really, it was such a simple thing because there wasn't money around. It wasn't as if your manager was going in and and, uh, and shopping you about for more money. It was it was just uh, as simple as let's go and give that a crack. So did you always have an ambition to play for Australia? And uh, I presume uh, you became, uh, you know, the world's best one-day international cricketer. I presume the, the ambition, though, was to play test cricket, right? My ambition was just to play cricket. I, I didn't, you know, yeah, test cricket was on the agenda. One-day cricket came on the agenda because of what, you know, where the game was developing to and, and obviously then the Kerry Packer influence through World Series cricket. Um so I, I never had a, a deliberate, I'm going to be a test cricketer. I, I wanted to be the best I possibly could. And, you know, if that was test cricket, fantastic. If it was one day cricket as it evolved, uh, fantastic. And so there was never a, there was never a, 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 a drive one way or the other. The drive was just to play as best you could. Let's go to a couple of specifics. Uh, you make your one-day international debut, I think, against the West Indies. What sort of team were they then? They were strong. Um, you know, they had a fantastic bowling attack. They had an enormous batting order, and they were the best fielding team in the world, and they were top of the tree. They were the measuring stick, and, and we had to somehow... Uh, get to you know that sort of level in time. We we did get there eventually, but you know that they, they were the um, they were who we learned off. And you know, the, the West Indies are really interesting. If we made 160, 170, often we beat them because they they would go back into their shell. But if ever you made two twenty or two forty, they'd get them with twelve overs to spare. But they had a, an amazing mentality. So it was. It, it was um, uh, they were just a wonderful, wonderful cricket team, and, and you know, those days, you know, the challenge they threw to everybody in the Australian team, uh, you know, that was just a fantastic era because you know, no two days were the same, and and you know, if if one of them didn't perform, another one did, you know, at this elite level, and you, you just had to keep trying to find. And and full credit to the Australian guys, uh, eventually we did, and and became probably the well, the, firstly, the best one-day cricket team in the world and then the, the best test team in the world for long periods of time. How courageous do you need to be to face up to really good fast bowling, which is what you're talking about there? Oh, it's part of the course. It's what you do. No, it's not. Um, Don't downplay it. That must be frightening sometimes. No, it's not. It's not if it was frightening, you wouldn't play. Now, it's the same as, a, the same as a footballer running back into a pack, if you like, or, you know, Standing there, knowing that you know the cavalry are coming. There's four big six foot six meters about to run over the top of you. You know, you just you just do it because you love what you do. You know, and it, it's interesting. It, instinct in a human being is an extraordinary thing, Steve. And if I if I was standing, you were standing in front of me, and I had a you know a, a, I don't know a paperweight on my desk, and I threw it at you. Nine times out of ten, I would never hit you straight in the face. It'd be a glancing blow. You'd see it, and you, your reactions you know, so quick, you're out of the road. And, and facing a cricket ball was exactly the same. 
Now, once you sense that, don't you? Got out of the way, whatever way you possibly could. But you know, generally, if you go back then, the people that got hit made mistakes. They made mistakes that you know that they tried to hook or they and they got a top edge and it you know hit them above the right eye. You know, those sort of things. So the fear, you know, I suppose what I'm saying the fear was there, but you know, that was still a driving force, and you you really relied on your your instinct that was still going to save you at the end of the day. But you could never be driven by fear. If you're driven by fear, you don't play because I, that'll inhibit what you do. I remember talking to our old mate Hooksy about when he broke his jaw, got a, a ball straight on, on his jaw. He was trying to hook that, wasn't he, from memory, from yeah, the vision? That, yeah, that was Andy Roberts who, you know, I think the build-up to that, I reckon Hooksy got a, you know, sort of one of his slower bounces, the one before, and he thought, I'll take, take him on if he gives me another one of those. The next one came about you know, 15 kilometres quicker. You know, and that that was the beauty of Andy Roberts. He had this you know this this sliding bouncer they used to talk about that'd be a lot quicker than the normal one. But but again, that's the sort of you got your your strengths and your weaknesses, and you tried to play to those. And you know, I, look, I could hook for to save myself. You know, even against the medium paces. So I was never going to you know when they started to climb above the shoulder, I was just hitting the deck most of the time because getting out of the road of them. It wasn't part of my game that I, I would use that often. So, I, you know, I was less prone, if you like, to mistakes. But, you know, I've seen guys get cleaned up, and, and generally it is. It's that, that mistake they've made a split second that the ball's either come a bit quicker or bounce a little bit more. And um, when it's right in front of your face and coming off the top of your bat, you haven't got time to move then. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we t- it's, it's all... Uh... We talk about bravery, uh, but we started this conversation talking about blokes who were getting into flimsy planes in the middle of the night, flying across Germany, not knowing if they'd ever come back. Mm. Well, That's many of bravery. them got into those planes knowing they wouldn't come back. Yeah, exactly. So you get selected to play test cricket and you make your debut against England in June of 1985. So presumably that's an Ashes series in England. Yeah, Ashes series in England. Um there were six test series in those days. They used to have a rest day after day three. Um, it was a, a, a great experience. My first test was at Leeds um, in that in that series. Uh, we lost. Who was your captain? In the end. Alan Border was the captain. How did you get on with we, him? We had a we had a meeting here before we left, and you know, funny you know, topic of conversation now is you know the 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 um, the hubs and the behaviour in the hubs and all those sorts of things. Um, we, you know, a tour of England was you know, could could touch on six months. It was you know five and a bit months, so it was a long time. You know, and everyone had families and partners and all that sort of thing back then. We had a meeting pre leaving for that tour, and we voted that you know the girls couldn't come. That would have gone down well. Turned on its head to a level that you know they could come for the last month. Okay, not a problem. Well, when they arrived with a month to go, we were one all. <laughs> um, there were two tests to play, one at Edgbaston and one at the Oval. We ended up getting beaten 3-1. Now, I'm not blaming the girls for that, <laughs> but it, it, it was was interesting how it changed the dynamic of that touring team. There were 17 of us and our manager and our doctor and, and physio. There was only sort of 20 in the party, if you like, no, nothing like today. You know, the dynamic was fantastic. And, you know, we played four tests, they'd won one, we'd won one and two draws. It was a really good series. 
we got smashed in the last two. So we, we off, I'm often reading about the situation now, thinking, okay, I wonder what would have happened if the, the girls came for the entire journey of, of the Ashes tour. Would that have been good or bad for us? Probably would have been good. I mean, hindsight, the lesson learned there is don't have a change, a radical change of behaviour halfway through. Correct, correct, and, and that was that was exactly the lesson. So, you know, we either should have been all in or all out, um, full stop. And uh, um, it was a um, uh, was was disappointing because you know it had, we'd gone so well for so long, and then you know, suddenly the even just a bus trip home from the ground. Oh, what are we doing tonight? Boys, we'll go to dinner there. And that that had all changed. Oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll I'll see what Jesse's doing and Sally's doing, and it, it all the whole dynamic fell apart. And uh, that that was very much the lesson. Um, you're either all in or you're all out. You ended up playing six tests for Australia, which is six more than you know ninety nine point nine percent of the Australian population. But why only six? I think I was only good enough to play six. I was probably lucky to get those. Um, see what, uh, look, no, no real reason. Um, I, I had plenty of time to get back into the test team. I played five tests in that tour in England. I played a test back here, uh, against New Zealand and I split into the fence at the SCG and we, we actually won that test. Um, and I tore the muscles away from my hip and my rotator cuff from my hip. So I missed three or four months of cricket, and I never played <coughs> test match cricket again. Um, and that wasn't for lack of trying. You know, I, I got myself fit again, and and I was I got myself back into the one day international team on a pretty regular basis. But I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, get myself back into the test team. But you know, that them's the breaks. You know, that over that period of time, um, the the war boys got going, and and the team got going, and started. You know, winning some more test matches and it, and it just wasn't um, it wasn't to be but uh, again you know it, it, it uh, uh, was a great part of my life and, and it wasn't for a lack of trying I didn't get another test match it was uh, a lack of ability more than anything else because um, the the horse had bolted and I didn't have my saddle hit to the to the right horse how exciting was it to win the World Cup in 1980 the one day international World Cup in 87. Oh, it was brilliant, um, and probably that was the that was the most uh, how do I how do I put it? it was the most exciting camaraderie I'd ever had from a group of people from completely different backgrounds. Who was in that team? Give us some names. Uh, Alan Border was the captain. Um, Jeff Marsh, David Byrne, Dean Jones, Tom Moody, uh, Bruce Reed, Craig McDermott. Uh, Alan Border, I, I think I mentioned. Uh, so Steve War, pretty handy team. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was good. Was it was a really good cricket team. Um, you know, Tim May, Peter Taylor was in that squad. Greg Dyer was the wicket keeper. So yeah, it was a was a good cricket team. But you know, we we went to India. We had, we had, you know we were probably uh, from a ratings point of view, you know, the second worst side in the world. And Bob Simpson, um, you know, as a coach, was a fantastic coach for Australia. And you know, we went back to basics and we became the best fielding team. And statistics in those days said that 90% of one-day international matches are won by the side that spent uh, scores the most singles. And we became the best runner between wickets and the best fielding team on, on that tour. And 
you know, after 10 weeks on the subcontinent, we became world champions, which no one expected. And, and that really catapulted that group that were, were a young group outside of AB. It was a, was a young group of men that really catapulted the, the basics of, you know, who led Australia then for the next, you know, 10 or 15 years, uh, in both Test and one day international cricket. Outside the dressing room, was Bob Simpson, when he was the coach of those Australian outfits, misunderstood by the public? He, the public never really warmed to him as a coach, did they? Uh, he was a, he was a really good, you know, I found him a very good coach from the point of view, you know, he, he kept things simple and, and, you know, he had success while he was there. Cricket sometimes can be a, a real political minefield. And you know whether whether Bob played that right or wrong, I'm not sure. But you know, you, uh, he, he, from a player's point of view, I think you know within within our four walls, you know, he really turned Australian cricket on its ear. What people think of him outside of those four walls, I'm not sure. But within those four walls, you know, he was he was very good to a lot of careers. So was it Bob Simpson that you needed to talk to about uh, your health at the end of that World Cup campaign in 87? Because as we, we know, you were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but you had a, I think you had an issue with your, your ribs. Is that how it started? Yeah, I had a couple, of, a couple of lumps on my ribs. Well, I had a lump on my ribs before I left to go to India and I, I went to Canberra and got a doctor to give me a um, uh, a shot and... Uh, they went away for a few days and then, you know, the, the lump went away and then one came back and he had a couple of mates with him. So that was, that, that didn't spell that things were all that good. Um, but again, I, I'm, I was no martyr in all of this. I, I wanted to play cricket for my country and I wanted to try and win a World Cup and be part of that team. And we won the semi final in Pakistan and, and, and it was interesting. It was a great win and, you know, um, the, the, the Ground was full, and you know the Pakistanis were trying to tear the joint down after Australia had beaten them in the semi-final because you know it was the World Cup was played in India and Pakistan, so everyone expected India and Pakistan final. Well, suddenly it was England and Australia, so um, the Pakistanis weren't that um, weren't that helpful with our trip back to the hotel and getting out of the country uh, as we thought they should have been, but I'm sure they would have <laughs> if we lost. It, that night we had a you know a bit of a celebration back at the hotel and I, I was just off colour and I was off colour because I knew that you know, the build up to the World Cup then in four days time and we fly home I'm going to find out what this is and I had a fair idea what it was um, you know with the injections I had before I left they were, you couldn't have got them much stronger and um, for them to defy those injections and a, a couple of cousins to come along with them I thought I was in a bit of strife but I just I needed to I suppose explain my behaviour because you know, I like being at the front of the line when there's a party and singing and having fun, and I wasn't. So I, I, I needed just to tell someone. So I thought, well, probably the coach is the right one. So I went to him and I said, look, this is happening, and I showed him where my issue was, and I said, look, everything could be fine. You know, um, the, the game will be fine. I won't miss a beat. Um, trust me, everything, nothing will get in the road of what I've got to do on the day. So. What did he say? That's why I put it to him, and and the rest was history. We 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 won the game, and, and we had a wonderful time. And um, uh, as I suspected, I came home and was hit with some pretty dramatic news. But um, you deal with the cards you dealt with. So you get back. How quickly do you go to see a specialist about this? 
I went from the airport. So I had to, I had to get my mum to pick up some jammies for me. <laughs> so I went from Bone Rahim from India, which was an interesting flight in itself coming back. And um, we had the trophy with us and everyone was celebrating. But then we landed in Sydney and went all our separate ways. And I came back to Melbourne and I actually went from Tullamarine Airport to the Austin Hospital. Uh, or the Warringal Private Hospital across the road from the Austin and, and had a biopsy there and um, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so, you know, to say you experienced the um, um, both ends of the spectrum from an emotion, in an emotional capacity within sort of 48 hours is an understatement. Talk about highs and lows. Did you even know mm-hmm. what non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was? Didn't have a clue. Um, didn't have a clue. I, I knew I was in a fair bit of shit. Uh, because the doctor that did the biopsy for me, I'd, um, I'd seen many times before. He, he, he would more be a um, orthopedic surgeon, I, and, and he did it, did the operation for me, and um, and that's why we got in so quickly and came from the airport and all those sorts of things. But um, yeah, he, he sat on the end of a bed and basically broke down while telling me. I thought, geez, I'm in deep trouble, deep trouble here. If uh, if old Doc's not um, handling this too well, um, where am I going to be? But again, the next week, see there's lots of tests and different things and um, capacity, you know, lung capacity and blood tests and all these sorts of things and eventually a, a picture was painted and this is what, you know, the next part of your life um, will be like uh, and, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't two choices, there's only one. And the one choice, you, you just have to get on with it and, and make the best of it you possibly could. That didn't mean everything was going to end up right, but you just had to do what you had to do. And, and again, I, I say it, I'm no martyr. Everyone will deal with issues in their life in, in different ways. I dealt with it the best way I, I possibly could. And I'm proud as punch that I'm still here, able to uh, talk to you some 30 years on. Did you ask the obvious question? I mean, how long have I got, Doc? No, no, never. Never. Um, deliberately? Uh, I don't know whether it was deliberately, but I didn't. And, you know, they talk percentages a lot and things like that initially, but I, I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want percentages, albeit I'm a gambler and I've been involved in the racing game all my life. But I, I didn't want that. I, I just wanted to know what it was. Uh, what we're going to do, what can I do to help that along, um, what do I need to do. And you know, there was no um, shortage of offers of assistance. You know, Some of the stuff that came through the mail, and I'm eternally grateful to the people that wrote to me and, um, in that period, you know, from you know, flying to Greece and soaking in you know, this special mud to um, boiling you know, orange peel and you know, all this sort of stuff is remedy. Uh, there, there was there was plenty and varied, but the key ingredient at the end of the day, Steve, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, um, is trust. And I trusted my oncologist. I trusted my theatre nurse. I trust my oncology nurse. And you know, that trust gave me great strength that I knew people were doing the best by me and I wanted to then repay that favour and do the best by them. And that's how it worked. And, you know, trust has become a, an enormous part of my life, always will be. If it wasn't then a big part then, it became a big part afterwards because 
it, it was really something that, that gave me enormous strength. So I looked people in the eye and they looked me in the eye and we, we felt we were going on a journey together and we were both putting in as much effort. How quickly did it become public that this had happened to you? Oh, pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick, you know, maybe a day or two. Uh, I reckon there was a training the next day and I didn't, I wasn't at training and, and that, that they said, where's he? I think they were looking for the line here to hang over and he couldn't get out of bed. But um, that, that's sort of when it started. But we, we sort of handled that in the best way we could. We had a press conference, an all-in press conference at Cricket Victoria at the time and explained it all and said, look, can you just, you know, um, give us a bit of space for, for the next few months. Be sure we'll come back and tell you what's going on. But you know, we just need a just need to get a head around this. And and I was happy to speak at that. So it, it was it was controlled in a sense from a from a public point of view. And, and there wasn't the there wasn't the tenacity of, of people to get news like there is now. And there wasn't the outlets to print that news and um, the platforms to release that news. You know, in those days, it was a, you know, a couple of newspapers and a couple of TV stations, as you'd remember. 1988, you get named the International Cricket of the Year. I mean, it's a hell of a comeback. How do you do that? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it was a new appreciation of what I was doing. I, I loved it. And, and I, you know, you wanted to you know, do the best you could. Um, and, it, you know, it just happened that way. It just, you know, I had a, a good year, and and you know, that that happened. Um, it, it is it's hard to explain why it happened. It just it did, um, but it was just a you know, thing. Things went my way. I think Lady Luck, you know, poor bug has been dealt a couple of crook cards. <laughs> Give him a bright light, maybe. But you know, there was a funny story at the end of all that. At the end of International Cricket of the Year, you get a um, in those days you used to get a car, and I got a Land Rover Discovery. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. Especially yeah, for a, a cattle farming bloke who likes horses. Yeah. Um, worth about 40 grand. But it goes straight into the pool, which which is, is all agreed upon, and you do that when you sign the contract, and I had no problem with that. So, you know, you've got, you've got a unit of the car. So that was all okay. Yeah, I got X amount of units. Everyone got their units. So, you know, we all got an extra, you know, $1,000 maybe in our pay packet. <laughs> <laughs> then the tax man came along at June 30, so I'm like, you haven't put that in the tax in your um in your tax return. So what? Because that car you want forty grand. I said no 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 that goes. He said no no no. It says here you won the car. The value is forty grand. And they wouldn't they wouldn't hear of it. The tax department that it, it goes into a into a um into a pool. So they taxed me on the forty large. So I lost about seven grand on the deal. Lovely people, the tax department. Um, yeah, wonderful people. I send them a great cheerio now. You make your own. <laughs> Leave me alone. You make your own luck in life. I mean, you've had an extraordinary career, uh, schoolboy athlete, um, into agriculture, which you loved, then playing AFL and VFL and then cricket. But I think the latter part of your career in horses is probably, would I be fair to say, has given you the, the best satisf- most satisfaction? How much do you love racing? Oh, I do. I, I love racing. Um, yeah, it, it, it's given me. Yeah, it, it's probably the, the modern satisfaction, if you like. You know, cricket and footy have become not distant memories, but they're they're well back. Um, but you know, I'm still not where I want to be in racing. Uh, 
it's interesting where the where the racing game is at at the moment. You know, with all this COVID stuff going around, I keep thinking back to the, the far lap days and the depression days. Some of the vision you see, you know, Flemington fallen and the patrons throwing their hats in the air and all, you know, that that sort of thing. I, I think you know, racing suddenly in the modern day has played a bit of that role in giving people a distraction while we've been going through this COVID crap that uh, we've had since earlier in the year. So I think really hats off to racing and what they're doing. And and now, you know, there's a the racing in general has that <coughs> dual hemisphere competitiveness about it. You know, it, it, it's a bit Australia versus England. You know, with all these imports coming over uh, and, you know, you know, winning our, our our Melbourne Cup, and I was lucky enough nearly to nearly to do that with a horse called Bower back in 2008. But you know, I reckon times are changing a bit now. We've got a great opportunity here of, of some homegrown horses being really competitive against those international breeds, and that's probably the the new frontier for me over the next four or five years. Is you know trying to find that horse out of local territory that can compete, compete with the big boys and offer far less budget than what they do out of the Northern Hemisphere and and be competitive here in the big race. But you're of the view, are you not, that the Europeans produce stayers and we don't? Their lineage helps them so much. See, they've been breeding horses for so long that they that the doubtness they have in their pedigrees is, is unsurpassed. But what we're seeing here now in Australia is we're seeing a lot more of our breeders going over to Europe and bringing back some of that lineage. So we're just starting to square the ledger a bit. Now, now there's not a lot. Now, when you go to a yearling sale, there might be you know, a thousand yearlings in a yearling book. Now, there's probably still only 60, maybe even less, 40 that fit the bill. But at least we're trying to nurture that breeding to be competitive and people are seeing that there's, there's opportunity there. And I, I genuinely think there is opportunity there. And you know, if we can get our... That, that breed right and we're getting it more and more that way um, and our trainers recognise that opportunity. I think in the next you know, three to five years, we could see a, a local horse win the Melbourne Cup again. How close did you go with Bauer? I mean, you were good enough to be on radio with me in Melbourne Cup week when that, that runner was in the Melbourne Cup. Lost by what, a nose? Yeah. Yeah. I know you don't want to be reminded of it. It must be painful. <laughs> That's never stopped you before, unfortunately. No. You don't mind you continue that reminder. Mm. What a day uh, that right. must have been for you. Did you oh, think you had it? Yeah, I did. My dad always said, you know, mate, if you've got the momentum on the line, 99 times out of 100, you win it. And I thought we did have the momentum on the line. But when you watch the replay, we didn't quite have the momentum on the line. We, we were just... We, we, we tuck it out about 20 metres from the line, a couple of strides out. So, um, yeah, that was the most exciting loss I've ever had. It, it was, it was extraordinary. The feelings of, to be in the last two horses, uh, for the last furlong of a Melbourne Cup going hammer and tongs, that, that was the most unbelievable feeling I've ever had in sport. So, uh, why, um, you know, I can only say that because you know, we're in no we're in no semblance of control. You know, if it's a wet track and you don't have a wet track, you're out. You know, the jockey's had a bad night. You know, you're out. You know, if you've got a bad barrier, you're probably out in many ways. If you don't have a lot of luck, so you're completely engaged in this horse race. 
but you can't do anything about it. You know, game of cricket or footy, you can, but um, you, you, you can do zero about it. And, and that's probably a, a big winner for me from a, a motion point of view of, of horse racing, why I love it so much. Melbourne Cup has tossed up some incredible stories and you've been involved in, in many of them. But, I mean, look at that. Michelle Payne wins on a 100-to-1 chance. I mean, if someone told you that before the race, you wouldn't believe them. No. No, they're quite right. And that's, you know, the great thing about horse racing, and this is often overlooked, again, you know, dealing sales and all, et cetera, you know, people importing these Northern Hemisphere horses, you know, you just hear about the big money horses. There's so many wonderful stories. You know, Michelle Payne's one of them made a movie about it. Um, you know, there are so many wonderful stories about horses that have come from such interesting backgrounds and been successful on the racetrack. Uh, it it would it, be great of our our uh, administrators, our authorities, our creative people within racing to, to showcase more of that because you don't need billions of dollars to be involved in racing. Now you can be involved to whatever level you want. If that's $200, $500, $1,000 or a billion dollars and you still have exactly the same chance as the guy with a billion dollars you do with $1,000. That's the great part of the sport. You hopeful that there'll be a crowd at Flemington on the first Tuesday in November? I'm hopeful. I, I just, I just hope you know this thing doesn't detract from the race, and I think it will. I know it'll be iconic, and we'll be all looking forward to it. But it's become the the best two mile race in the world by a long, long way, and you know it attracts the best, you know, in general, you know, the best horses to run in it, and you know, it'll be the sad thing if, if we can't have the best horses running in it, but there'll still be a winner. There'll still be a great story. Uh, I can't wait for that first Tuesday in November. Any Anyone with racing running through their veins, um, that's the day. And uh, you know, we look forward to it now, and let's hope it brings a smile to all our faces. There is some people there. It's a, a great day of racing because we'll need it. Well, just as Farlap did during the Depression, maybe that's uh, what we need uh, on that first Tuesday in November. Simon O'Donnell, it's been a great pleasure catching up. Thank you, mate. Simon O'Donnell joins other Australian sporting stars for On The Record, including Mark Scaife, Mark Allen and Sam Newman.